Well, good evening, everybody. As you can tell, I am not Terry Fakes. For all of you all who, uh, yeah, don't clap because I'm not Terry Fakes. He's gonna watch this, you know. I am not Terry Fakes. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Blake Baston. I'm one of the pastors here at our church. Uh, Terry's out in Israel, taking another group to Israel. And so just a quick plug, if you have never been on that trip before, I would highly recommend it. I got to go three years ago and it's just a life-changing experience. It is worth the time, it is worth the cost. It's worth all the hassle it takes go on that trip. But he's in Israel, and so I'll be subbing for him tonight. And he asked me to cover a text that comes out of John 8 uh, with the lesson title, The Truth Will Set You Free. And so I'm excited to cover this this story tonight. Uh, One of the great things about being a pastor and getting to teach different texts throughout the Bible is a lot of times you learn a lot yourself whenever you're preparing for a lesson. And so I'm just excited to actually just share with you all the things I've learned as I've been preparing to teach you tonight. Uh, Another couple things to to understand, some of you may may look at me and realize that there's a massive scar on my head, and I wish I had a cool story to tell you about why I have such a spot on my head. I, I thought about telling you that Terry and I got into a heated debate about what the best Bible translation was. And things just got out of hand, but it's not the case. I had a little deal at spot removed last week. Stitches come out yesterday or tomorrow. I just figured that it was better for me to go with stitches in tonight than to have a massive bandage on my head for you folks. So thanks for bearing with me tonight. The only other thing you have to think about tonight that's different than normal, other than the fact that I'm not Terry Fakes, is normally Terry does this thing where he will allow you to ask questions and he will answer them on the spot. I am not gonna do that (laughs) at all. And the reason being, I listen to this class each week and I know the type of questions you ask. And most of my response would normally be, that's a great question. We'll wait till Terry comes back and we'll, we'll ask him together. So we're just gonna avoid that all together. Uh, so if we could, before we get into the lesson tonight, let me pray and uh, I'm excited to share God's word with you. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for this great church that you've given us. We thank you for the freedom we have to gather together, to enjoy each other's company, to laugh, to encourage, to help each other. We just thank you for the, for the group of people you've brought together here in this room. I thank you for everyone who's listening online. I thank you for this great nation you've given us. May you be with all those who are suffering, be with those who are oppressed, be with those in Ukraine and other parts throughout the world who are really struggling right now. May your hand be with them. May you be with Terry and Laura and all of our brothers and sisters who are there in Israel with them. May it be an incredible experience as they study your word and see where you walked. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the text we're covering today, I said, comes out of John 8. It's gonna be John 8, 31 through 38. But the text, you know, it, it's an interesting scene. That This text takes place in a very heated scene between Jesus and the Jewish people. I mean, things are really intense. And it all starts, the whole chain of events that led to this scene actually take place uh, more than a year before this scene occurs in the Bible. And, and this story we're gonna go through actually ends with people who say they believe in Jesus, or at least indicate that there's some sort of belief in Jesus, deciding that they wanna kill the guy, right? And so what I'd like to do is I wanna 
I wanna cover the text that Terry asked me to cover today. That's gonna be where we anchor. But I want you to really understand how we got to that point, what happens after. And the way we're gonna dissect this today is we're gonna take the story and we're gonna say, what did we learn about God in the midst of this story? And what did we learn about man? And based on what we learn about God and about man, what do we actually do with this? So to get us uh, kicked off, let me read John 8, 31 through 38. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. There is a lot in this. And so just to give you the background, like I said, this all, this all started with something that takes place back in John chapter five. And it's a story you're probably familiar with. It's a story where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Uh, he, he heals the man, he tells the man to pick up his bed and walk, and then he tells the man to, to go and, and sin no more so that nothing worse would happen to him. And so, as you get to that context of the story, we pick up with that man going to the Jewish people and telling them what Jesus has done for him. So here in John 5, 15 through 18 says, the man who had been healed went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Big no-no for these guys, right? But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, we don't really pick up on this so much today, but for a Jewish person at that point in time, hearing Jesus say those words, when he says, my father is working until now, and I am working, they would have heard him saying, I am equal to my father, my father being God. That would have been very, very clear to the Jewish people. Verse 18 said, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So after this scene, Jesus continues on for his ministry for another year or so, and, and in that time frame, he's doing a lot of the things you've read about, right? He's performing miracles, he's teaching a lot of lessons, uh, he raised people from the dead, he removed demons from people, he sent out the apostles. He's been really busy, right? And word is starting to get around about this man named Jesus, the authority with which he is teaching, and all the different things that he is doing. And then we wind up in Capernaum in the, in the Galilean region and he teaches this fairly odd lesson in the synagogues to the Jewish people. And John 6, 54 through 59 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Not something you hear us saying all the time right here at Crossing, right? Whoever drinks my, drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Right? Jesus is being pretty clear here that he is not just a prophet. Right? He is getting people's attention. He's making some big, big claims right? That he is the bread of heaven. He is the substance of life, right? He is the giver of life. People understood what he was saying. And this, this teaching took a lot of people back, right? Especially the way he was doing it. It says that a lot of people turned away from him. It said a lot of his disciples actually turned away and stopped following him. He asked his close group, the 12 disciples, he asked them, do you too want to turn away? Right? We see a lot of people leave Jesus at this point in time. And then we move from the region of Galilee and there's a festival going on in Jerusalem that happens next. And this festival is called the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. Right? And, and let me read you what occurs here as we go into this feast in Jerusalem. It says in John 7, 10 through 15, but after his brothers had gone up for the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has all this learning when he's never studied? Jesus was teaching with such authority, right? In Jerusalem, right? Teaching with such authority that they're, they're not saying, what is he teaching? They're saying, who is this man, right? He hasn't even gone and been taught by all the rabbinic leaders of the day, right? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is that he has all this authority, right? And so then we get into the verse 19. Jesus tells them whenever he's teaching, he goes, has not Moses given you the law? yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered, I did one work. And he's talking about healing the man on the Sabbath. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I just want you to feel for a moment. Everything is getting very, very tense, right? Things are really starting to boil over. Jesus is teaching some very bold things to the Jewish people in Jerusalem during this feast. And, and you start to get confusion in the crowd. You have a number of people who are hearing all these teachings and, and they don't know what to make of it. Some people are calling Jesus out and saying, you have a demon, right? Some people are looking at him and saying, who, who is this guy? The, the Pharisees uh, are, are looking at him and saying, something's gotta be done about Jesus. And, and it goes there, John 7, verse 25 says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? 
So I just want you to picture the Jewish leaders at this point in time. They've got people now in their midst, all murmuring, all talking, going, maybe he actually is the Christ, right? He's speaking openly and these guys aren't doing anything. They say they're gonna kill him. They say they're gonna arrest him, but nothing's happening. He's right there. Are they not telling us something? Right, what's going on here? You just see there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. There's a lot of unrest. People don't know what to make of, of, of Jesus. And the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, do not want things to get out of control. So they, they try to find a way to arrest him. Now there's some context we need to know as we go through the rest of this scene. The, the feast that they're there, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, this is something that the Jewish people were commanded to do by God, and they did every single year. They would go to Jerusalem, and they would actually pitch tents, and they would stay in tents. They actually still do this to this day, right, in a very different way, but they do this today, right? They would pitch tents, and they would do it to remember the time when God led them into the wilderness, the exodus of Egypt, whenever they would stay in tents and they would follow God. They would do it to remember that time, to honor God, to commemorate all of that time. And there were two really important symbols that they would use as they would commemorate God during the Feast of Booze. The symbols were water and light. And so during this, this week, the high priest would draw water out from the Pool of Siloam and he would pour the water out upon the altar there in the temple to commemorate the time when Moses struck the rock of Meribah that he had provided for water for the people when they were in the wilderness. If you remember that story in the Exodus, the people are grumbling, they're really thirsty, there's not enough water for all the people, they wanna go back to Egypt where at least they had water and Moses gets frustrated and God provides water to them by striking the rock. There's a lot more to that story, but they would remember that time. They would celebrate that time where God provided living water, right? When he provided life to them in the desert. So I want you to keep that in mind that they're the people, the Jewish people are there right now commemorating God providing living water. So keep that in mind and go to John 7, 37 through 38. It says, on the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want you to listen with, to the authority with which Jesus is speaking and teaching here today. Who is it who provided the, the water from the rock in the wilderness? It's God, right? Who is it that the people are there in Jerusalem celebrating at this point in time in the feast? It's God, right? Who is Jesus referring to when he says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water? Jesus is very clearly making bold claims that not only is he the Messiah, he is God. They would have known that. They would have heard that. People reacted very differently to, these te to this teaching. Uh, you had some people who started wondering more and more, is he really the Christ? Right? You had some people who questioned, well, if he is the Christ, I didn't think the Christ could be from Galilee. Then you had the Pharisees wondering how in the world they can get rid of him at this point in time. I just don't want you to underestimate how much pressure was building at this point. Something was gonna have to blow. This was like a boiler 
that had just, the pressure had built and built and built and no one had released the tension at this point in time. Something was gonna blow in the midst of this scene. So after Jesus gets done with this teaching and after the crowd starts having all their different reaction to us, everybody goes home, goes back to their tents for the night. Now Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to, to retreat. And then in the morning, they come back into the courts in Jerusalem and we see this famous story where the Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus. They attempt something else to find a way to get rid of him. And they bring this woman who's been accused of adultery and they, they, they question Jesus about that woman. And you've all heard this story before. And that's when Jesus says, let the one who is without sin be the one to throw the first stone, right? And the tension just builds even more because he bested the Pharisees and they didn't get rid of him. So then after this, we have another great exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and the tension builds even more. And in the midst of this tension, Jesus starts to have a debate with them about what is truth, right? And, and I promise you, I'm gonna get you to the point that Terry asked me to actually teach in this lesson, right? I will get you there. You just gotta bear with me, but I need to get this whole context set. But they're gonna start debating what is truth. If the truth will set you free, you need to know what is truth. Pilate asked that great question right before the crucifixion of Jesus, what is truth? is truth, right? We need to understand what is truth. So it's gonna get a little technical, but I wanna go to this next passage in John 8, 12 through 19. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They're going back and forth and nobody likes each other right now, okay? Just keep that in mind. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Remember I told you during the Feast of Booths there were two symbols that were always used, water and light. He's already talked about being living water. Now he says, I am the light of the world. They didn't take kindly to that. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What they're saying, the words you're saying about who you are is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And then he goes back and he uses their own law against them. He says, his law, right? Their law, in your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father, God the Father, who sent me also bears witness about me. So they said to him, therefore, who, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. Again, this is just a big direct claim that I am the Father, right? I and the Father am one. I am God. I'm the Messiah and God, right? And when this whole bear witness uh, statement that comes up that two people have to, if two people bear witness, it is truth. It comes back from the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 17, six, it says, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. But a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, Pretty much it's saying like, if you're going to court, you need two witnesses. If somebody's gonna die for the things they have done, two people must testify. So Jesus is saying what? He goes, I'm telling you something that I'm saying to be true. 
And I'm the first witness, and God the Father, the one who sent me, is the second witness. That is how you know the words I am saying are true. So as, as we get for this, I, I want you to pause. I want you to see what all has happened here, right? The tension is building, right? The Pharisees are trying to find a way to trap Jesus and arrest him. His disciples don't know what exactly is going on. He's saying that his judgment is true. Uh, he's saying that it's true based on the witness of two people. He goes even further to say that he is God, right? That he knows the Father. Don't you just kind of wish that you could have been there for this, Jesus going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Pharisees, just going back and forth, showing them how they're wrong, how he is right, how he is truth, right? I don't want you to underestimate just how tense, how much conflict was brewing in this scene. He is claiming to be God right in their midst and that his judgments are true. He's also claiming that he has the authority to give life and to judge life, right? And so just think about the fact that to, to be punished for murder, to be put to death, it takes two witnesses. He's saying, I am, I do have the two witnesses. And then he goes on to make a number of statements about sin and death and truth. All this will come to fruition, I promise you. So then John 8, 21 through 26, he said again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. This is a new element to the conversation. He goes, I'm going away, you're gonna seek me. And by the way, you're going to die in your sin. Where I'm going, you can't come. So the Jew says, is he gonna kill himself? He goes, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die. So they said to him again, who are you? Right, who are you? He said, I'm telling you the same thing I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say and I have much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Pay attention. They don't ask Jesus why they're going to die in their sins. They ask him who he is. Do you have the authority to make these statements? Right? Jesus is claiming right here to have the authority of God himself on the witness of two people, including God the Father, and he's saying, I told you that you would die in your sins. And it says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus introduces this I am statement right here and, and, and you'll see it come up again. But if you remember, we're, we're talking about the symbolism going back to the Exodus scene. And you remember when Moses is called by God to lead the people out of Egypt. He, he asked God, whenever he's having that first conversation, he's like, who will I say sent me? And God says, say that I am sent you, right? Jesus is saying right here, I am he. And it's gonna come up again. They would have heard that. And what's interesting is after this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, there's something that happens. It says, the scripture tells us that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. People were hearing these words, were hearing this teaching and they believed in him. And so then Jesus directs this text that we're meant to cover today, that I promise you I will, right? Jesus directs his teaching for this text to all the people who've been a part of this entire conflict and all this tension, everything is boiling. He directs it to the people who say, we, we think we may believe in this. And so then let's get back to where we started. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, right, who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does. So the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father and you do what you have heard from your father. This whole scene ends as you go on from the next, from verse 39 to 58 in chapter, in chapter eight. It ends differently than you may think, right? People believed in Jesus' words and he starts this whole dialogue with them about the fact that he is the truth and the truth will set you free and you can die in your sins, but in me, you can have life. He starts all this dialogue and it does not go the direction you might think it goes. I'm gonna just paraphrase the rest of this chapter, but the Jewish people respond to Jesus differently and they, they say, well, hold on. You're talking about your father, our father. Don't you know that our father is Abraham? And Jesus rejects this. He says, look, if your father was Abraham, you would do as Abraham did, but instead you're doing the works that your father did. And this makes them mad. This, they're hold, this is something they're holding on to tightly and it makes them mad and they rebut it and they say, well, hold on. Well, at least we're not born of sexual immorality. And this is a quip about Jesus being of an unwed mother Mary, right? So just, this is getting heated again. Remember the people who believed Jesus responds and says that if God were your father, then you would love me, but actually you are just like your father, the devil, right? This would be a great sermon series to do one day, right? And, you know, just, just call, Jesus is calling out people who say they believed in him at the beginning, and whenever there's a conflict, he goes, you're, no, your father's not God. Your father's not even Abraham, right? You are sons of the devil, Right, hard teaching. Sometimes, sometimes you only read the cuddly little passages from Jesus. Right? This is not cuddly in, in any way. And he says, your will is to do your father's desires. And then he talks about their father, the, the, the devil, in John 8, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The exchange continues and just gets worse. The Jewish people say, you're a Samaritan, which has been a big put down. And they go, and you have a demon in you. And Jesus says, no, I don't have a demon in me. But by the way, keep my word and you will never see death. The Jewish people say, no, now we know you have a demon, right? You are, are you saying that you're greater than Abraham and all the prophets that died? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad and the Jewish people don't understand this and they go, how in the world can you claim to have known Abraham? You're, you're not even 50 years old yet. How would you have known him? And Jesus says this, he goes, truly, truly. And when you hear truly, truly, you need to pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying it as bold as he possibly can. I am God. And we know that they understood what he was saying. Why? Because of what they did next. They went around the temple where it was under construction and there were some loose rocks and they grabbed rocks and they tried to kill him. Jesus gets away, obviously, but they tried to kill him. So then it goes on and we kind of go back to our text here, just so you see where this scene ends. Go back to our original text well, I want you now to know, you know how it started. It started with the healing of a man on the Sabbath, right? 
and it ends with people who say that they were interested in at least in believing in what Jesus was saying, trying to kill him. And in the middle, you've got our passage here that says, the truth shall set you free, right? What I wanna do is break it down. What do we learn about God in this text? And what do we learn about man? First, let's start with God, right? What we learn about God in this text is that God is actually truth. God is truth. And you follow the logic. Jesus saying that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus saying that he is God. Then Jesus saying, if the truth will set you free and I am God and God is truth, then by the way, I can set you free. Jesus is the answer. He is the one who can set us free. The words and the authority of Jesus, we understand, is established upon himself and the testimony of the one who sent him the Father, and we understand that his words are true. He has the power of life. He has the power of death. He has the authority. There's no greater power to testify to the truth than what Jesus is saying. And we also understand from this text that he is eternal. Right? If, if, if we're just trying to understand God better from this text, we see that he is eternal, that he will never fade away. Look at verse 35 in this text. It says, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. I want you to think about this idea of a house as your home where you can be at peace. Right? You can be at rest in your home. And if you think about this, this idea of if you are an heir of an estate, if you're the son, right, you're the heir, that home is always your home. But if you're the slave, you may have a time period where you're in the home, but it's never your home. And the Jewish people would have understood this very, very well because they would go back to Abraham and they'd think about Abraham and say, you know what, Abraham had two sons. His oldest son, Ishmael, was a son of a slave, started out in the home. Second son, Isaac, was the son of promise. He was the heir of the blessing of God. Ishmael eventually gets kicked out of the home, but Isaac always remained. Right? What Jesus is saying here is that if you are a slave to sin, right? if you are a slave to sin, you may feel at times that you are at home with God, right? but you are never a permanent resident if you're a slave to sin. But if you are a slave to Christ, if you are his, then you belong to the one who is righteous and who is true and who is forever and eternal. You are the heir of the blessing. You are the heir of the promise. You never have to worry about not being at rest at home in God. That is what he is saying about who he is and what he has come to offer. Now, I actually think we learn a lot more about man in this text than we learn about God. A lot of those, those, those things I just talked about God are things you've probably heard before, but I think we learn a lot about man and I really wanna dig into what we learn about man because there's a few really important points in this. And the first thing I got out of this is I was really digging into it is that we need to understand that the words of Jesus are true and that when he says that we can either be a slave to sin or a slave to him, that is accurate, Right, that is true. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Truly, truly. When you hear Jesus say truly, truly, just quick aside, I want to, that, that word is like our word, amen. 
right? We say amen at the end of a prayer or amen when we wanna proclaim something as bold as truth. But when Jesus says it at the beginning of the statement, he is saying is not only is what I'm about to say true, but I have the authority to make it truth, right? R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, whenever we read in the text of scripture, our Lord giving a statement that's prefaced by a double amen, it's time to pay close attention and be ready to give our response with a double amen to it. He says amen to indicate truth. We say it to receive truth and to submit to it. Jesus is telling us this concept is very important for us as men and women, right? We are either a slave to sin or we are a slave to him. We are either a slave to sin or we are free in him. Now, as Americans in particular, we like to believe that that's not true. We get these two choices, and there's two choices all throughout the Bible, good fruit, bad fruit, slave to sin, slave to Christ, right? We like to, in America, go, hold on, there's probably a middle way, right? We, we actually think that we're not a slave to this, we're not a slave to this, we're not a slave to anyone, we're gonna find our own way. A lot like the Jewish people were doing in this dialogue with Jesus, right? They're saying, no, no, you say that we're a slave to sin, right? We're not a slave to anyone, we're sons of Abraham. We are free because we are sons of Abraham. Right? And Jesus said, no, 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 there's only two options here, slave to sin or a slave to me. And if we don't think that's true, all we really have to do is think deeply about it for about five minutes, and we'll come to the conclusion that he's right about this. I want you to give you maybe the, the boldest example of this. So if you think about unlimited freedom, right, to be king of your own world, to do whatever you desire, the picture that comes into my head is 80s hairband, right? 80s hairband rock and roll stars. Picture your most favorite 80s hairband, right? I hope that you all have a great picture in your head right now, or else you think I'm committing heresy right on stage. One of the two. For me, it's Guns N' Roses, right? 80s, 90s hairband. So I've got, I've got Axl Rose in my head right now. But, but the whole concept of rock and roll is that I am free. I can do whatever I want. I can break instruments on stage. I can drink. I can do drugs. I can have unadulterated sex with anyone I want to. No consequences. Live free, right? And you can just have this concept that Ultimate freedom is what you, were, you saw experience with these rock stars. Now, the great way that we can know that that's actually not freedom is because VH1 did this great series called Behind the Music. Does anyone remember Behind the Music in the 90s and 2000s, they would do this? And they would tell these stories of what happened to these rock bands over time. And the story was always the same, right? The height of their success, everyone thought they were living this great life and they weren't. They weren't free. They were actually slaves to something. They were slaves to their addiction. They were slaves to their success. They were slaves to whatever it was that they were chasing, right? They were not free. And you saw that come out time and time again in the heart-wrenching stories that would come from those documentaries. The, the, I'm gonna go, there's a slide coming up and I want you to see that this concept of us trying to see whether or not we can chart our own way, that we can be free, this is, this is an idea that was accurate at the time of Jesus, that people thought it's accurate now. And even back in the 1800s, this concept was, was very pervasive. There's a book called The Brothers Karamazov. It's, it's written by Dostoevsky. And in this book, there's a character uh, called Father Zosima, who is a, a monk. 
And this monk is mentoring a young Christian who is trying to deal with all of what he's seeing in the world, trying to deal with this freedom that he sees other people getting to experience. Let me read you this quote. This was in the 1800s, could have been written today. The world has proclaimed the reign of freedom, especially as of late. But what do we see in this freedom of theirs? Nothing but slavery and self-destruction. For the world says you have desires and so satisfy them. For you have the same rights as the most rich and powerful. Don't be afraid of satisfying them and even multiply your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world, right? This is what the world says about freedom. Whatever it is you desire, go do it. Multiply your desires and then you can be free. But that is not the biblical idea of freedom. That is not what Jesus is saying when he says the truth shall set you free. He's, he's talking about something very, very different. This idea of freedom that, that being mentored in Dostoevsky, that is slavery to sin, right? That is slavery. The biblical idea of freedom is this. One who is free, this comes from William Hendrickson, a commentator, he says, one is free when sin no longer rules over him. And when the word of Christ dominates his heart and life, one is free, therefore, not when he can do what he wishes to do. Let me read this slowly. One is free not when he can do what he wishes to do, but, to, but when he wishes to do and can do what he should do. You know, I butchered that again. Let me do this again. Not when he can do what he wishes to do, but when he wishes to do and can do what he should do. Our ancestry, our heritage, who we are, what we desire, all of those things, that will not bring us freedom. Freedom comes when what we wish to do and what we should do align, right? We have the freedom to do what we ought to do. And who tells us what we ought to do? God. Freedom comes from following him, from following his ways. He is the one who sets us free because he is truth. He is the highest authority. There is nothing greater. Keep digging into this concept. More things to learn from this text about the nature of man. In verse 31 in this text, we see that Jesus is talking to a specific group of people, people who had believed what they were hearing. Now, we see here that there is a difference between believers of Christ and disciples of Christ. People who have said, I will learn from you, I will follow you, I will submit to you, I have surrendered to you. They believe, but they are not followers. Right? Here at Crossings, we have a mission statement, and our mission statement is we exist as a church to help people find and follow Jesus. Right? Now, these people in the text, they had found Jesus, but they were not following Jesus. These people, they, they wanted to know truth, they wanted to believe the teaching of Jesus, but at the same time, they held on to something that they just couldn't let go of. And because they held on to something that they wouldn't let go of, they did not follow Christ. In fact, they rebelled against him. They held on to their ancestry. They held on to this idea that they were descendants of Abraham and that is what the key should be. That is what would make them free. They would not let go of that. And when Jesus challenged them, and when Jesus says, no, 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 you're actually no different than the Gentiles. You are all slaves to sin, and I am the only one who can set you free. When he challenged them on that idea that their Jewish ancestry would not save them, they rebelled. And I want us to be careful, because it's easy to assume that, well, no, we would never do such a thing. 
But it is such a good warning for all of us, a loving warning from God that we get here. And I wanna say it again, this is a loving warning where he says it's easy to believe, but it's a lot harder to follow because we may say, well, all that sounds pretty good, but I've got this thing over here that I really need to hold on to. I can't give this up to you, right? And if you're not giving that up, you're, you're not surrendering to Christ. Think about it this way for us. We, we fall into the same trap. It's easy for us to say, well, we believe and you know what? We go to church, right? Or, or we grew up in a Christian family or we grew up in the South or we are Americans, so we must be Christians. We must be followers of Christ. It's easier to fall into that trap of thinking than you may think. The Jewish people wouldn't let go of what they thought was true and accept Jesus's definition of truth. It's easy for us as sinful, fallen creatures to have the same exact issue. And if you keep going down into that, the last thing I would say about the nature of man is that we have to understand that we have this competing desire within us. We have this one side of us that because we are made in the image of God, we, that image of God, that wiring that's within us wants order, right? It wants peace. It wants to submit to a higher power. That wiring wants that. But then we've got this sinful, fallen nature of ours that wants to rebel against everything. We wanna chart our own rules. We don't wanna submit to God. We want to be God, right? And these two natures are always at conflict. They, they, they always cause problems. And if, if you think about this, I'll show you a quote from a Duke law professor, and he's actually talking about this in context of setting law and legal theory. But I want you to see how he defines this competing tension we have, this one side of us where we are trying to submit to a transcendent supernatural power to be ordered in our life, to surrender, and this other side of us that desperately wants to make our own way. Let me read this. It says, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete, transcendent, and imminent set of propositions about what is right and what is wrong. Findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us on how to live righteously. I also wanna believe, and so do you, in no such thing, but rather that we are wholly free. We're our own rock stars, right? Not only to choose for ourselves what we ought to do, but to decide for ourselves individually and as a species what we ought to be. What we want, he says, heaven help us, he says, is simultaneously to be perfectly ruled and perfectly free. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the wrong and the good, but then also to be the people who create it. Right? We have that tension in us. We wrestle with that dilemma. You see the Jewish people in this text wrestling with the dilemma. They want to believe what Jesus is saying, but they also wanna make their own way with what is right, what is truth. We desire to do all this for ourselves, and this ends up creating just incredible conflict in our lives. There's a reason why our politics today in America are so utterly vicious, right? Absolutely incredible. There was a time in America where we had a bit more common agreement about what was right and what was wrong, right? We had this idea of these transcendent supernatural rules of what was right and what was wrong. And we may have completely disagreed about how to achieve those rules or how to achieve those outcomes, but we had at least more alignment 
with what was right, what was wrong. Well, today, not only do we disagree about what the best way is to achieve outcomes, we have complete and utter disagreement about what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, what is lie, what is the meaning of life, what's our purpose. We don't have commonality on this. And I'm telling you, this will end badly in the long run, right? When you don't agree upon what you're searching for. And in this concept, and I promise you, I'll actually make this point eventually, but this concept is, is more simple, but it's more profound than you may think. We have to understand who sets the standards for what is right, for what is truth. If Jesus says the truth shall set you free, we have to know who sets that standard. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a little kid in elementary school and you're playing out at recess on the playground. Uh, and when you're out at recess, you're playing basketball and, and, and you're playing and then this other kid comes up and takes your ball, tells you you're not allowed to play on the court anymore and they start playing basketball. When that completely violates everything you understand to be the rules of recess basketball. You're like, no, 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 there's rules here, right? We ought to share the court. We ought to be respectful of each other. We shouldn't hurt each other. We should find a way to come together and make this work. And the kid who stole the ball and kicked you off the court looks at you and hears your plea and says, says who? Says who? And you go, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know who makes the rules. Now I want you to, to take that same example and make it something more serious because we're all playing this great game of says who. I want you to substitute playing basketball at recess and you have a conflict between what is right and wrong at recess and substitute with who gets to decide what it looks like to protect the life of an unborn child? Who gets to make that decision? What's right? What's wrong? Who gets to be the authority? Who's the ultimate authority to say this is right and this is wrong? Somebody has to set that standard. Is it, the, is it Congress? Is it our Constitution? Is it our president? Is it, is it our state governors? Like, who is it who sets that standard? And so people who try to determine how to make laws, they think about this all the time. And I'll go back to that same Duke professor. He says this, he goes, there are no such circumstances. We are never gonna get anywhere, assuming for a moment there's something somewhere to get, in ethical or legal theory, unless we finally face the fact that in the psalmist's words, there is no one like unto the Lord. If he does not exist, there is no metaphoric equivalent, no person, no combination of people, no document, however hallowed by time, no promise, no premise, nothing is equivalent to the actual God in the central function as the unexaminable examiner of good and evil. What he's pretty much saying, trying to say is, at the end of the day, if you really do the logic and you're trying to determine if you're gonna put a law in the books, is this law right or wrong? The only way you can truly determine if it's right or wrong is to know what does God say about it? It's the only, only way. We have to understand in our lives that as sinful fallen creatures who try to determine our own path, we try to be kings, we try to make our own way, that the only way we can know if something is good or evil, right or wrong, truth or lie, is to know that without God, it's not possible to even come to the conclusion. Now you may say, you may challenge me on this, 
And I hope you do, because I hope you're thinking deeply about this. I really hope you're, this is making sense. If not, you're gonna like, tell Terry, never let this guy teach again, right? But I want you to think deeply about this. And you may say, hold on, Blake. Everyone knows you shouldn't murder people. And I'd say, no, they don't. You know, the Russians obviously don't know that right now, right? It is not just natural for everyone to say you shouldn't murder people. I can tell you all kinds of cultures all throughout the world and all throughout history who have had no issue whatsoever in killing another human being. Now, why do we as Christians believe that we should not take life, that we should not murder? If you really think about it, the only reason we believe that is because God said so, right? Now you may say, well, hold on. Let's go a little bit more basic. Let's say, well, everyone, we all know that everyone should be treated with dignity, and I'd say, well, yeah, as a Christian, I believe everyone should be treated with dignity. No matter what mistake you've made, no matter what your life choice is, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what your skin color is, everybody, everybody should be treated with dignity. But I don't believe that because it's just a good social thing to do. I don't believe that because that's a new way of thinking in the world. I believe that because we believe that everybody was made in God's image. And if you are an image bearer of God, no matter who you are, you deserve to be treated with dignity. We believe that not because somebody in government thinks it's good, not because our family thinks that's the right decision. We believe that because God said so. Because God said so. And you may say, hold on, this is all just common sense. And, and I would challenge you that if you were living your life when biblical principles and saying that you're living just by common sense, I'd say there's actually no such thing as common sense. Common sense is just what you think is normal because you've been brought up in a society that has certain norms and expectations about how we live. And we happen to have been brought up in a society that has certain norms and expectations based on biblical principles. And why is that? because we had faithful people at the time who set the laws and the systems based on biblical principles because they thought to be faithful and God said so, right? All of these things we do, what is right, what is wrong, at the end of the day, the only, thing we, the only reason we're doing it is because we think it's right because God said so. In this passage, Jesus is telling us something very, very simple. He is saying he is the truth, he is God, and he will set us free. He is telling us that we are slaves to sin and, and our only options are to be slaves of sin or slaves to him. And why is all that true? Why is what he is saying is right? It's true and it's right because he is God and he said so, right? When you disagree with the Bible, I want you to think about it. You're a sinful fallen human creature however many years of wisdom you may have in this world, you are not God. He is. He is God and he said so. So we say, yes, God. We trust that your words are true and that truth will set us free. When the Jewish people were saying, no, 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 no. What you're saying is not right. We're sons of Abraham. We are free because of who we are. Jesus is saying, no, you don't get it. I'm God, you're not. My word is true, you're not. But I love you, trust in me, abide in my words, and the truth, me, I will set you free. What do we do with this? 
If you go back, the application of this text is actually really, really easy. Go back to the very beginning, verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says, if you truly want to be my disciples, people who follow me, not people who just found me, but people who follow me, right, if you wanna be those people, abide in my word. Abide, it means to stay, it means to remain, to reside. It means to stand fast in battle, right? You are going to stay in God's word. Another easy way to say this is that if you love me, you will do what I say, right? We will obey God. We will know his word in a way that we intimately know him. We know what is true. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. And we follow him accordingly because he is God. As Christians, when God says that he commands us to treat people with dignity, we do because he says so. And you know what? We're actually freed from the pain that's caused when we treat people poorly. As Christians, we, he, God tells us to tithe on our earnings. With joy, he tells us to do that with. By the way, I'm the finance guy. I have to talk about tithing every time I'm up here. So just a quick aside, caveat. Not trying to guilt anyone, just telling you what God says, and he's true. So, but he tells us, when he says to tithe on our earnings with joy, we do so because he says so. But here's the thing, when we do that, we're actually free from so many things. We're free from self-centeredness. We become freed from greed, from materialism, from all the things that will put us in bondage, right? We eventually get free if we do this right and we follow his way. We get free from debt, the shackles that come in debt. He sets us free when we follow his ways. When God says that sex is reserved for marriage and we, we trust him and we submit to that teaching, however countercultural it is, when we submit to that, we are free from the pain that is caused when we have that type of relationship outside of a covenant. The pain that's caused when that doesn't work out, the pain that can happen when you are not in a trusting covenant relationship with someone and God and you have that relationship. We are free from that. When he tells us, and he gives us this command, Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the gathering together. Whenever he tells us, gather together, Christians, brothers and sisters, come together. When he tells us to do that, not only are we free, we are free to live with each other. We are free to encourage each other. We are free to love each other. We are free to stir each other to good works in him. We are free to live, and it is a glorious freedom. And, and what happens over time is you trust in him and you trust in him, and he rewires your brain. He rewires your motives and your desires, and all of a sudden, what you wish to do is what he wants you to do. And so that's what you do do, right? And we are free. It's a beautiful thing. He is the truth and he has set us free. But I wanna caution all of us, right? That we will attempt time and time again to say that Jesus, you're not right about everything. There's another way I can go. I can trust you with all of this, but I've got these things that I need to hold on to. Or even more that happens today is, well, yeah, you say these things are right and wrong, but you know what, God, that, you're so old. 
You know, like, like these, this text was like 2,000 years ago. It's not even relevant today. I mean, I know you're the almighty God who, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, created time and the universe, you know, all these things, but, but my wisdom is better than yours, right? We are so tempted to do that. I am tempted to do that today, and I'm a pastor here, right? I'm tempted to do that today, to say the way we think is true and right actually trumps the wisdom we get from you. And he's saying, no, 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 you need to trust me. I am truth and it'll set you free. I want you to do an exercise this week. As Terry says, you get a homework assignment most weeks. I've got a homework assignment for you to do. And I want us to just remember this week that we're not much different than those Jewish people who rejected the teachings of Christ because we were holding on to something that we thought, right, that we think is more important or more wise or, or that we just won't let go and get to Jesus. We're, we are so easy to get into that, that framework. So I want you to do this week is I want you to do something I hope you all probably do is I want you to watch the news. And when you watch the news, most of the news that you watch today does not just give you facts, and I hate that. You know, they, they will give you opinions. Watch whatever side of the news you want, right, left, middle, libertarian, whatever you wanna do, watch the news. And you're gonna have some value statements that come to you. And you're gonna have to make a decision. Do I agree with what they said? Or do I not agree with what they said? Do I think that is right? Or do I think that is wrong? And I want you to play this scenario out. How do I know if it's right or if it's wrong? Is it because that's what my political party says? Right? Or that's what my family has taught me? Or that's what my friend group says? Or that's what my fa favorite social media follow says is right or wrong? Do we, do we come to our conclusions that way? Or do we say, hold on, Jesus said, abide in my word. Know my word intimately. I'm gonna make my decision based on this is right or wrong based on what Jesus said, what God's word said. And no matter what people say about my conclusions, I'm gonna trust that God's word is good because he is good. I'm gonna trust that he is right because he is God. At the end of the day, we are not God, but he is he is truth and he will set you free. Play that out, exercise, exercise that in your lives. Don't just assume why you believe what you believe. Believe it because it's God's word, because he is good and he is wise. And if you follow his ways, he will set you free. Make sense? If it doesn't, talk to Terry in two weeks. Sound good? All right, you are dismissed. Have a great week. Bless you guys. We'll see you next Wednesday.